whatever tool helps you to develop more stillness and silence within your being. So that way you can listen beyond, you know, positive enthusiasm, or you can listen beyond the grips of the ego to really see from a more expansive sense of just your thoughts, just your intellect. That was Amanbir Singh, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Hey, Dharma Talkers. Thank you for tuning in. I very much appreciate you making the choice to share some of your downtime, or let's be honest, you're probably on your commute or doing housework right now. So some of your multi-purpose time with me and my esteemed and inspiring guests. I've got another great conversation to share with you this week. But first, I wanna make sure you're in the loop with the latest happenings on Henry Yoga app. I'm excited to share that we just recently released a free 60-minute Hatha Vinyasa class that I know you're going to love. This is an energizing and grounding practice complete with sun salutations, all directions of spinal movement, floor postures, and pranayama. You can find it for free on the freshly minted version 1.5 of Henry Yoga app for iOS. That's US only for now or at henryyoga.com slash masterclass, which is available everywhere. And hey, if you're opting to skip the yoga studio for now, given the current risk of communicable disease, here's a great way to get your practice in at home with some guidance. Once again, that's henryyoga.com slash masterclass. Okay, you may have noticed that many or most of the yogis I speak to on Dharma Talk have studied with a diverse group of teachers across a whole range of schools and lineages and practices. Why do you think that's the case? Well, there's an easy case to be made that the more varied perspectives we can expose ourselves to, the higher the likelihood that we will find a system that works for us. So there's self-interest at play. We experiment, we embrace what serves, and we reject what doesn't. But my guest this week, Amanbir Singh, shows how a cross-functional, cross-traditional education can actually serve others. Because he has a firm and confident grasp on multiple healing modalities, including kundalini yoga, traditional Chinese medicine, and astrology, to name a few, he's able to offer a personalized treatment regime for his students and patients. And ultimately, this approach comes down to a philosophical stance that there is no single best method, no one truth, and that as practitioners, healers, teachers, we must be connected to the why behind what we offer. More on all of that to come shortly, but first, let's thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by Warrior Bridge NYC. Warrior Bridge is an interdisciplinary movement studio in downtown Manhattan, offering classes in yoga, acro yoga, handstands, and flexibility training. Their classes are skillfully designed, featuring anatomy-informed warm-ups and progressions, drawing from and blending different yoga and movement modalities. While the offerings are diverse, what's constant is an emphasis on practicing in a way that honors where you're coming from and where you're trying to go. Warrior Bridge offers a full schedule of weekly classes, weekend workshops with visiting instructors, and teacher training programs, the next wave of which will be held this summer in NYC. First up, anatomy and movement teacher training from July 15th to 25th, led by Sean Langhouse and Emily Lazinski. Sean was a past guest on Dharma Talk, of course. This training is designed for both practicing and aspiring teachers who want to better understand anatomy and how the body works, as well as Warrior Bridge's unique training methodology around yoga, handstand, flexibility training, prehab, and injury prevention. And the next training will be their Acro Warrior Teacher Training from July 27th to August 6th. This is New York City's only acro yoga teacher training and is all about immersing yourself in the acro practice and acquiring the skills to safely and intelligently lead acro yoga classes and practice. Learn more and register at warriorbridge.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Yoga East Austin. 
Coming up in May is an event I'm really looking forward to because it will be a first. In May, I'll be heading back to Yoga East Austin in Texas, this time to practice yoga with Anna Forrest and Jose Calarco. Anna and Jose were previous guests on the show and one of my favorite interviews of 2019. I enjoyed speaking with them about how they have integrated music and ceremony into their yoga classes and workshops, but mostly Anna's approach to using expansive and pinpoint breathing to heal specific areas of trauma. Her system of yoga, coupled with Jose's passion for music and ceremony, set an intention, or as Jose would say, an invocation for a nurturing and spiritual practice. Many of my favorite teachers and peers, and even past guests of the show like Jared McCann and Benjamin Sears, have all attributed much of their growth to time they spent learning from Anna. I know even today, parts of my practice are bits and pieces of wisdom Anna has taught to someone that I have learned from. I'm super stoked to be with the transcendent and legendary Anna and Jose on May 8th through 10th, back with my friends at Yoga East Austin. Spots are filling quick, so be sure to check out yogaeastaustin.com slash forestyoga and use promo code HENRYWINS to save on all four workshops Anna and Jose are teaching. Once again, that's yogaeastaustin.com slash F-O-R-R-E-S-T-Y-O-G-A and use code HENRYWINS to save on the workshops. I'd also like to thank my friend Andrew McClure for making a recent donation to Dharma Talk. I'm so grateful for your support, Andrew. And Dharma Talkers, Andrew didn't ask for this shout out, but if you're in the market for a Michelin star chef approved vegan butter, you got to go check out Andrew's awesome company, Fora Foods. If you too would like to make a donation to support the podcast, you can always do that at henrywins.com slash donate. Now to more formally introduce my guest, Amanbir Singh, at Yogi Amanbir on Instagram, is a licensed acupuncturist, yoga therapist, astrologer, and kundalini yoga teacher. He has been teaching in New York and internationally for the last 15 years and participated in training nearly 1,000 teachers on how to teach kundalini yoga around the world. Amanbir leads unique cleanse programs combining kundalini yoga for detoxification with traditional Chinese medicine to give each participant a personally tailored diet. He believes there is no single diet or approach that best serves all. If you enjoyed this conversation and you would like to know more about Amanbir and what he has going on and coming up, then go to dharmatalk.show and type Amanbir in the search bar. That's spelled A-M-A-N-B-I-R. And there you'll find all the notes, highlights with timestamps, and links for this episode. And if you're looking for something to read, know that I keep a running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk. You can find Amanbir's recommended books and all my past guests' recommended books at henrywins.com books. So go there and pick one out. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Amanbir Singh. Amanbir, I am so happy to have you on the podcast. It's been too long since I got a chance to to see you live in the flesh in New York. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. And uh, yeah, it's a fun time with Mercury Retrograde, but it's good to connect with you. Yeah, likewise. It's it's definitely been too long. Um, I, I, I miss seeing you around Lighthouse in, in New York, but um, times, they are changing. We're all going through transitions. So uh, it's nice to reconnect. Yeah, we always yes, definitely nice to reconnect with you. We always begin with the first, uh, the same first opening question. So I'd like to offer you that question now. What does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it today? The word dharma, what it means to me, is the ability to work in alignment with what I perceive to be my highest self. And when I think of that quality of the highest self, it's understanding that all of us have both light and shadow, darkness, you know, darkness and light. 
and we have moods and we have fluctuations, but the highest self is where I think of the aspect of me that's beyond the fluctuations of time and space, beyond the fluctuations of my mind or my mood or my light or my shadow, like assessing good versus bad, but the highest, highest aspect of who I am and the highest ideal that I work to recognize and then to make actions and aspects within my um, life based off of that. And so Dharma is like walking this path to be in alignment, to serve that highest sense of self. Very good. Yeah. I think this is a, this is a subtle point and an important one to make because I think often we want to identify with the light, the high, the happy, all the good, but you're saying that there's something different that transcends even that and to latch on to the happy or positive parts of our fluctuations misses the point. How do we, how do we um, differentiate between the positives of our fluctuation and something that is higher than that? I think we can differentiate based off of that Dharma is not necessarily a comfortable process, but also one of the ways I think really can help is to cultivate like one tool is meditation, but also you could use yoga, you could use Qigong, but whatever tool helps you to develop more stillness and silence within your being. So that way you can listen beyond, you know, positive enthusiasm, or you can listen beyond the grips of the ego to really see from a more expansive sense of just your thoughts, just your intellect. And I think for some people, they'll just find that alignment much more, easier. Uh, I think for most of us, it's just a continual path as we continue to grow and work on ourselves, like to keep working on reflection, keep working on really reflecting over our state of being. And then that's when we can train ourselves to listen more to like what I refer to as like the voice of the soul that goes beyond those fluctuations. The voice of the soul. Okay. Yeah. It is an ongoing process and that's why we have practices your practice is, seems to be a mix of a lot of different things. You are a kundalini yoga practitioner and teacher, also an astrologer, and also a practitioner of Chinese medicine. Probably some other things that I haven't mentioned. So, Amonbir, can you walk me through a little bit of your um, evolution, your journey to uh, practicing these various techniques and how you've brought them together? Yeah, so part of my uh, part of my journey began when I was in engineering school. But you don't have to add that to the list. I'm not an engineer, <laughs> but I went to engineering school here <laughs> okay. in New York, uh, Cooper Union, and <laughs> and that was under strong encouragement by my parents, even though I was not interested in engineering. <laughs> but I did my undergraduate program there, yeah. and I was always interested in. So uh, if there was like a degree program for astrology at the time, I probably would have tried to pursue that. But um, I remember as a kid, I would just study so many books and I really would also, because my mom was into astrology, but also uh, the, the, one of the best teachers of astrology has just been life. Like, so when I get to meet someone or have someone close to my life, I'm like, what sign are you? What's your moon? What's your rising? And then kind of figure out like through their actions, like, where they're vibrating in terms of their astrology. So that's always like, it's always been an interesting study for me. And so then when I was in engineering school, I was looking for ways of dealing with stress. And I, one of the things that did help me was a Hatha yoga class that was offered there with a teacher named Tuesday. And she offered, I think it was class was probably on Tuesday as well. And I remember those are the only moments where I felt like this deep sense of peace <laughs> And then she, she moved away to California. And so the, the school was left without a yoga program. And so I went on Craigslist looking for ways to volunteer. So I was like, if I volunteer, that will help with my stress. And the very, the very first ad I saw was free yoga for volunteer service. And I was like, that's the best of both worlds. So I emailed them and they emailed me right, about, right, right away. And literally the next day I was there volunteering. <laughs> And that really expanded my world. And so pretty much every free time that I had where I wasn't studying or with friends, I would spend it there at the yoga studio just volunteering 
So I just love the energy of the space. And the studio was called Universal Force, which the, the lead teacher and the owner of the studio was a master of Kabbalah, Universal Kabbalah, and also um, a very amazing Kundalini Yoga teacher. So my introduction to the Kundalini Yoga teachings was also through the lens of Kabbalah and the esoteric aspects. So I just was really like, you know, that term eating it up. I was really just soaking it up. I just loved so much. And I was just studying and studying and studying. And it was really enriching my life, the study of it. So it just encouraged me to want to go deeper and deeper and deeper. So that really led to, um, you know, now that was 2005. And so that led me to eventually take on the path of doing teacher training, uh, universal Kabbalah, this healing training with the same teacher, Guru Nam. And, uh, and then enrolling in an official Western astrology course with Rebecca Gordon. So it's, uh, so it's really like, I just knew I wanted to pursue this path. And then during that time, I was also working in law. So after engineering school, I went to, I applied to work in law in a heart defibrillator litigation firm that was defending people that were given defective heart pacemakers and defibrillators. And because my engineering background, I was able to help out with these cases mm. But uh, I was doing it to see if it was the way that I wanted to have an imprint on this world. And uh, during those three years working in law and still doing this yoga, I realized that it wasn't for me. <laughs> but um, when I was laid off, thankfully, I decided like, okay, what makes sense? And I realized that all of my free time was at the yoga studio. All my free time was learning healing courses. So mostly at the time was Reiki and universal Kabbalistic healing called harmonium. And I was like, what kind of school can I go to? That's really like official, you know, quote unquote official. And that's when I decided to go to Chinese medicine school. And then that path went, you know, continues to go so deeply. And I did a five, I think I went to school for five years because I really wanted to study everything. So I did both my master's in Chinese medicine, as well as my associate in um, massage therapy, focusing on Chinese medical massage. So I did two different programs at the same time because I wanted to go so deep into it. So really, that's so it's really this, this passion that I wanted to study what I really loved, and then it just came to this point of really infusing and integrating it all together. Wow, yeah, that's a lot of different uh, impressions to be taking in at a, a pivotal time in your life. Yeah, I, I'm not too familiar with. Uh, Kabbalah or universal Kabbalah or this harmonium healing method. Can you give me a little primer on that? Yeah, it's, it's working in essence with the idea that all of us have a, what's called like a light body, a body of light within us. And so one of the ways that harmonium works, universal Kabbalah, is to recognize and to work with the light of a person to enhance it. And that's like, that's how I perceive it. It's just a way of enhancing the light that's already inherently there. So that way the body goes into its natural state of healing. I see. And how is that um, interwoven into Kundalini yoga practice? Or how was it at that studio where you were volunteering? Well, at that studio where I was volunteering, it was a huge part. Like everyone really loved the teachings of the Kabbalah because he wrote a book called Lifting the Veil. And it's, it covers all of the Kabbalistic and esoteric aspects of Kundalini Yoga. And, um, and he, got, he showed it to the master of Kundalini Yoga, who really loved it and appreciated it and approved it. And it's such a, a deep book. So at that studio, was very much, it was very focused on the more like energetic aspects of the yoga practice. And kind of like the energetic roots, like the things behind the scenes, so to speak. So I was really appreciating that. And, and, and it's uh, within the Kundalini Yoga practice, there's, there's a lot of energy. Definitely. Anyone who's practiced Kundalini Yoga can attest to that. Yeah. And, and what was your, what were you doing when you were volunteering at that studio? Because at the time it was not your, it was not your vocation. You weren't working there uh, and you weren't a yoga teacher yet, right. right? No, I wasn't. But I had an odd experience, which is very, it's very different now. Like, I think I was really like the last of this era of it because this is, other people have had similar stories, but uh, I was a volunteer at the studio 
And then there came one class or no, sorry, one time that they like the staff, the management went out to a yoga festival in New Mexico called the Summer Solstice Festival. And they left me in charge of the studio as a volunteer. And so uh-huh. one of the days that I was covering, like opening up and covering the front desk, bringing people in, there also happened to be like a classroom, maybe like, I think there was like 12 people in the class and, but there was no teacher there because the teacher was also away, forgot to get coverage. And so I was uh-huh. like, so worried. <laughs> I was like, what do I do? And thankfully the manager at the time, his name is Chris, uh, I called him up. And I was like, hey, Chris, what do I do? And he's like, oh, it's, and he was so calm and so encouraging and so clear about it. He was just like, just lock the front door. And you see one of the books on the shelf that says Kundalini Yoga. And I'm like, yes. He's like, well, take, you know, take one of those books and teach something from it. You got <laughs> and, this. And uh, yeah, and my attitude as a volunteer was just, yes, 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 yes. Uh-huh. So I was just like, I didn't even have to answer the question. I was just like, okay, yes. Lock the front door, grab the book, taught something from it. And that's how I began. So I started, so I started at the studio Universal Force. It was March. I, actually, the very first class I took was March 21st. I think it was the spring equinox of 20, 2005. And then I think, I believe that class was June 21st, 2005, which is probably the summer solstice. So it's really interesting. So, the, so I started teaching within a few months after only taking a few classes. Wow. <laughs> and then after, then after that class, they actually gave me a regular class on the schedule, which was a volunteer, it was by donation class called the Healing Circle. And so you sit in a circle and meditate and do prayers. And so I really appreciated being part of that community. And then I eventually did my teacher training that autumn. That's so funny. It's so funny. What was your, um, you know, you had that that attitude of yes, 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 I'm the volunteer, I'm going to be of service. But once you actually got in the room, shut the door and were like witnessing yourself teaching a room full of students, what were, what was going through your head at that time? Honestly, I think I, I really remember, I don't remember all the details, but I just remember being really excited. Like I wasn't, yeah. I didn't even have space to be nervous. Awesome. I just knew I really loved these people. I knew I loved the yoga and it was exciting to be able to like share that with others. So after the class, what was really um, pivotal for my life was I remember how bright and happy the people were. And then that led me to be like, okay, well, I had no clue what I was doing in, in a certain sense, other than from reading the instructions. Mm-hmm. And these people are so happy and so bright. I was like, wow, this yoga is really powerful because if I could teach it with really no experience or understanding, then it's, um, you know, it's, it, it is, this is really stuff that I want to incorporate deeper into my life. So that's when I actually started incorporating one of the recommendations from the Kundalini Yoga practice is that you have a daily practice, a sadhana. And so that's when I started incorporating a daily meditation practice into my life. And, um, and that's when I was interested in signing up for the teacher training. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's so funny that you um you told that story because actually I had a similar experience the first time I ended up teaching a class too. It was sprung on me and I, I was not prepared for it at all. I actually was one of my friends who was a yoga teacher asked me to come down with him to do this workshop where he was going to teach and he asked me to be essentially his demo boy. He was going to like talk about a posture, have me do it, and then they could look at my body and my anatomy going through the postures. And, or, or whatnot. And once we got down there, he was like, so how do you want to do this? I figure I'll teach the first half, you teach the second half. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's not what we agreed to. <laughs> but, but similar to you, like it w- I was so in the moment of it and I didn't have a lot of time to agonize or get anxious leading up to it that there was no space to be nervous and I just got excited. So it's cool to hear that you had a, a similar story. Yeah, it's fun because <laughs> there's, no, there's no space to really like over contemplate or get in our way about it. It's just like you just have to be present. <laughs> yeah, you just do it because you're present. Okay, so at that point, you you started a daily yeah, sadhana. You started a daily uh, kundalini meditation kriya practice. How has your practice evolved over time since then? Yeah. That several years, I mean, that was 15 years ago. So what does your personal yoga practice look like now? And um, and how have you incorporated these other elements? 
Well, my personal practice now is it definitely shifted from those early days because in that day, um, I really just appreciate like the meditations and I, I saw each because there's thousands of meditations in Kundalini Yoga. So I did the ones that uh, Guru Nam gave me. So, um, which were all chant. He loves chanting. So there was all chanting meditations and I love those. And, uh, then I met with another teacher, uh, named Guru Dev Singh, who's the master of the healing, the healing technique taught in Kundalini Yoga is called Satnam Rasayan, which is basically a way of healing that works by meditative awareness. It's becoming so aware of the state inside of your own being that as you become aware of it, because we're all related, all of us. So the people outside of us, the universe, the world is all reflected inside of us. And so as we become more aware within ourselves and we start to bring that awareness, it creates a shift within our external circumstances. So therefore it leads to a healing state. So I met with this master who's very sensitive. Like he can, um, yeah, there, there are times where he's embarrassed me <laughs> in like a group setting because he's like, oh, you need to go see the, um, you need to go to see this. You need to go see a hydrocolon therapist once he told me in front of a group of people. He's like, you're backed up, dude. <laughs> but um, so he's very sensitive. And he told me he was speaking in a very, such a very quiet voice. And basically, he told me that I just needed to work on more of the sensitive field. So as much as I love chanting, the meditations that he recommended for me were all in silence. <laughs> and for other people, he'll give chanting meditations too. So really, the where I am now is like I'm doing mostly silent meditations. And those meditations that he originally taught me in 2000, I think it was 2006, I met him. And... I'm doing those, incorporating those meditations because I find those to be more challenging and I feel like I'm in a space where I'm ready to face the more challenging discipline to go deeper. Mm-hmm. But I would definitely say for someone who's new to meditation, really any style, is just find something easy that works for you that you feel happy about. <laughs> and then when you feel ready, if you, if you decide to take this mission, you know, then you choose something that's a little bit more challenging that you can honestly commit to and it gives you a a deeper aspect because you're facing your own inner resistance. Yeah. I think that's great advice. I think it's most important that you set, uh, in the beginning, at least set the bar low basically so that you have something that you can actually commit to and be disciplined with and be consistent with. And then when you get that momentum from actually following through with the commitment that you set for yourself, that's when you can layer on the added challenges and, and layers of difficulty. Yeah. What, what have you found to be the effect of moving more from the chanting and, and vocal kriyas and meditations to the more silent practices? I feel... It's hard to also reference it because I was in such a different place back then, but sure. at least where I am right now in my life, I feel it gives me a little bit more space to reflect over my own actions, my behavior, um, my dynamics within relationship and my career. Like there's more of a space of self-reflection. I see. More of that a make, space of self-development. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that you mentioned before was that as you like learned all of these different healing modalities, you eventually took it upon yourself to bring them together. I know that that's something that you do in, in the programs that you lead, but can you talk to me a little bit about how someone might mix Chinese medicine with Kundalini yoga? So yeah, absolutely. Within so within Kundalini Yoga, it's a very dynamic tradition because it incorporates elements of Sufism, incorporates elements of Western and Vedic astrology, Ayurveda. There's all these different Kabbalah, you know, as I first was studying it. Uh, so it incorporates all these different elements or aspects to it. 
And so when I was in Chinese medicine school, for example, I, one of the first classes where we learned about the meridians, uh, the meridians are the lines of energy that flow through our body. And we learned, we learned about the lung meridian that goes through the internal organ, branches out, this line of energy branches out in both arms, out to the, the thumb. But also the meridian actually begins right at the navel point, so right below the belly button. And what was interesting with learning that was there's a kriya in Kundalini Yoga that's learned as one of the basics called new lungs and circulation. And within that kriya, I never understood why the, the first exercises made sense. You do these arm exercises that are supposed to open up the energy in the lungs and you can feel it. But then in the middle of the kriya are all these core exercises, abdominal exercises. And I never understood why there would be core exercises and like core strengthening exercises in a lung kriya, like a kriya to open up the energy of the lungs. And so then when I was learning Eastern medicine, I was like, aha, it was like a, the light bulb moment because the meridian mm -hmm. begins in the core. So if you strengthen the core, you strengthen the source of the meridian. So it really just, it put a lot of uh, aspects of the teachings into greater connection into, in my consciousness. And so when I teach, especially in teacher trainings, something that like I'm usually called for is like when I teach the postures to talk about the energetic connection of it as well. Talk about the, the emotional, the psychotherapeutic connection of the asanas. So that's something that I incorporate when I teach in a teacher training. Yeah, it, it is always very interesting when you study two different schools that have developed essentially in vacuums, um, meaning that they like the originators or the the teachers of the these schools have not spoken to one another, and they arrive at similar or the same truths. And what that yeah. always tells me is that I can have more confidence in that teaching because it's not just based on hearsay independent thinkers yeah. arrived there. Yeah. And so you are using the meridians from Chinese medicine to kind of give you a deeper level of conscious awareness over how the kriyas are working. But then you also are an acupuncturist, correct? Yes, I'm also an acupuncturist. So I incorporate, so there, that's when I incorporate the Kundalini Yoga teaching. So when I have a client that's suffering for something, one of the aspects of Kundalini Yoga, because I also studied yoga therapy with Kundalini Yoga. So the, the yoga itself, Kundalini Yoga is designed for healthy people to achieve excellence. And that's in the words of an amazing teacher here in New York named Huddy. And, but it definitely can be catered and, and prescribed in a certain sense for people dealing with various health or mental conditions. Not every condition, but a lot of conditions. And so that's what yoga therapy focuses on. So in my practice, if someone's open to breath work or even meditation or even asana, that if they're dealing with a certain issue, let's say like a thyroid condition, I may also include a pranayama that's supposed to benefit and bring prana energy to the thyroid or a kriya or asana like shoulder stand that's also therapeutic for the energy of the thyroid. So things they can do in addition to seeing me for treatment. Right. It, so in a, in a sense, you're looking for a, a holistic approach rather than trying yeah. to limit the, the avenues of healing to a specific um, training that you've taken. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so and all, have all you have, tools have, special, have special aspects. So it's just it's utilizing it all that, to ultimately help others. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's an important thing to to check in with yourself whenever you are trying to be of service to to another is like what is actually the the purpose here? What am I trying to help the the person achieve? And in in most cases it's reducing suffering or some version of that. It's not for them to use the most comprehensive acupuncture technique that you learned or the most complicated one that demonstrates your knowledge the best. It's what, what is going to work? Yeah. Yeah. That's the key. I say, yeah, what, what can work? And I find there's a, why well, I appreciate having so many different backgrounds is that there's some people that may come to me for help or terrified of needles 
I'm not going to do traditional acupuncture on them. But in those situations, I may give them herbs and then I may recommend a med- meditation. So that's another route that can then help the person. So I, I am very grateful I have different um, modalities that I can call upon, sometimes separately or sometimes in fusion to help others. What has been one especially challenging case for you when it comes to treating an, an individual client or, or patient? And what did you do to, to, to solve the, the case? Hmm. Well, let's see. Still protecting patient, you know, confidentiality. But I'll just talk in general no about it. Yeah. And so uh, one case was a very challenging case with um, with this person coming because they needed help for like inner. They came to me for energetic protection, and they were they felt they were under psychic attack. And so I'm glad they came to me because it's, um, it's, it's, if they had gone to maybe like another practitioner, they would just maybe ascribed it to a, um, what's called a shin disturbance mm-hmm. <laughs> or like a disturbance of the mind and heart connection. And in that situation, if someone is under a psychic attack, then definitely there can be a shin disturbance. But then I was also able to give them mantras from the Kundalini tradition that are designed to create mental protection or protection from negative energy. So like they include uh, even the Mangla Charan, you know, the second mantra that usually is used in the beginning of Kundalini Yoga class, Adgadename, Jigadgadename, Satgadename, Siri Gurudevename. That's a very powerful protection mantra. And then I also created one on um, my last album, African Soul and Jop. I created that because I was going through such a hard period in my life. And I felt like I felt so much like darkness in my environments. And on my personal life, I felt there was like so much like negativity and betrayal. So I created, I, I was like, I need to record this mantra to help other people. So I recorded this one called Op Sahai Hoa Shabid. And I put that on that album because I was like, this can be for other people because that one is designed to, um, in the words of the, the, the master Kuni Yoga, melt your enemies like ice cream in the sun. Now, it doesn't destroy <laughs> them, like no bad karma, but more so the way that I see it is it takes, takes their animosity and helps it to dissolve or the external animosity, even if it's like your own mental animosity, it just helps it to go into a space of resolution. So I find that mantra really powerful and I still utilize that one. Yeah. I like that analogy because ice cream doesn't disappear in the sun. It just gets soft. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that's a really interesting um, example that you gave about the person who came to you who believed to be, who believed themselves to be under psychic attack. Um, From what I know about Shen Disturbance, which is obviously much less than you having studied many years in Chinese medicine, but um, sometimes that's referred to as meditation sickness. So if you were to look at it through that lens, uh, maybe a an exclusively Chinese medicine practitioner might say, well, meditation is the last thing that you should do to deal with that. So have there been many cases where you found that your various um, trainings and various uh, perspectives have been in conflict one another, or do they tend to typically support one another? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think it's the nature of life. Even even if within one tradition, you can find a lot of conflict or contradicting yeah. ideas. I just yeah. think that's the nature of involve us humans into it. <laughs> but definitely, there's conflict. Like for example, in the Kundalini teachings. Uh, what's really highly regarded to help your life for anybody is taking a cold shower, except in the case of menstruation, high blood pressure, pregnancy, or yeah. sickness. Other than that, cold showers are considered a very powerful way of increasing your health and your the strengthening your auric field of protection. But in Chinese medicine teaching, classical Chinese medicine teachings, <laughs> teach that cold water is basically like evil <laughs> yeah the worst it's the worst i know it sounds extreme but like if you see a classical chinese acupuncturist and you tell them that you're taking cold showers they will like scream at you like no you cannot do that you destroy your energy so 
the way that I look at these things is I just try to look case by case. And I, what has, what, how it's great for me is that it doesn't allow me to go into a dogma, dogmatic space because I can see both perspectives and I understand mm-hmm. everyone is different. So even if, um, even if there's like a set diet, like I lead cleanse programs and, um, like I was actually just yesterday, I was speaking to a student who's doing, wants to do a green juice cleanse here in winter in New York. And she's running around a lot. And, uh, she was like, she asked me, I don't give unsolicited advice, but she asked me point blank. She's like, do you think it's good for me? And I was just like, um, well, you know, you already <laughs> are doing so much and just having green juiced during the winter time. That's also like the kidney energy is the most fragile and it's freezing cold outside and you're running around outside. I would, you know, I would just maybe consider a different approach. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. and whereas yeah. like if we were in summer or, or if your competition was very fiery, if you had a lot of fire, then I would say, oh yeah, green juice, no problem for you. You already have a lot of heat in your system. It's fine. You'll be balanced. But in her situation, it wasn't. So I'm able, so that's where I try to approach the differences is by really looking case by case, like seeing like, okay, yeah, in this situation, um, someone who's very, very ungrounded and in that context of shin disturbance, then yeah, I would recommend that they don't meditate, that they walk in the grass. They do more grounding asana practice as well. This asana is also meditative in a sense, but there's asanas that are definitely more grounding, um, more earth element building. And so that's what I would recommend in those types of situations as opposed to doing this hour long etheric meditation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the example that you gave of the, the cold waters is so on point too, because I'm a big proponent of the cold showers. I had heard about it from Kundalini yoga teachers and, and then also, um, from practicing the Wim Hof method, I just, I saw yeah. how it, it is. It's like a shockwave through your body. It's, it feels so good to like wake you up. It feels like your circulatory system is just awakened and opened. And I recommended it to a private yoga student that I had who was Chinese and she just completely dismissed it offhand. She's like, well, we don't do that. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So funny. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, let's, it's, it's, um, let's it's, talk. Well, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, you go okay. first. No, I was just, just going to say it's interesting too. Like some aspects are put into the culture that are like without questioning. So there is a great book called the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Chinese Medicine. And that book covers like the essentials of why, at least it gives explanation. But oftentimes when I encounter people, sometimes they do these certain patterns without knowing why. Mm -hmm. And so you can get very strong reactions like that, that you had. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's the whole dogma versus non-dogmatic approach thing. Like, do you have a sense of inquiry around the decisions that you're making? And I think no matter what background you're coming from, it's always healthy to have a rationale behind the things that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned kind of offhand that you uh that you have music that you put out there with your renditions of classic mantras and and probably some other things too let's let's talk a little bit about that how did you get into music and when did you make the decision to put your own unique spin on some of the mantras that you've been practicing well i got into that pretty early i think it was I think it was 2006, I started recording an album. So also in those early days of teaching, I was, uh, I was leading sadhanas at the Studio Universal Force Healing Center. And then I, I was very like, I had the zealousy of, of most students when they're new to a tradition. So I used, I was printing out flyers for sadhana and handing it to every person I saw. and so there was one guy that was just looking in the bookstore at universal and um i hand him a flyer and he's like oh what's your name and so my birth name is joseph and my last name is young and so then he was so guru nam's legal name was joseph michael levery and he's very creative type so he somehow thought that joseph young was code for like junior. So he thought I was Grunam's son. Ah. And he, and, uh, like, as Joseph it turned out, he, 
Yeah, yeah, Joseph the Younger. So his name is Ferenz, and I recorded my first two albums with him. So as it turned out, like he had recorded at that time all of Guru Nam's mantra albums, which I think at that time there were like six or seven albums out that they recorded. So we started spending time together. And because he was like, oh, we need to spend time. We need to work. And then he was like, we should record an album. And he sold that to me right away. And I was like, what? No, no. I was like, you know, I, I've sung in choir, but I, you know, I'm not, I can't create an album. And so we were hanging out one day in his apartment and that's where he would record. And he just literally puts the microphone in front of my face. And he's like, here, just start chanting. And I was like, okay, fine. And I did. And then he made a beautiful song from it. And I was like, wow. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, and so then as we were recording, like he's such a creative genius. So as we were recording, um, he, we were like, he likes to listen to other like sounds and music for inspiration. And he introduced me to a group, which I unfortunately didn't hear before then, called Bronsky Beat. Have you ever heard of this group from the 80s? No, I haven't. I haven't. Okay, they're, they're cool. Like, check out the music, Bronsky Beat. And so we were listening to lots of Bronsky Beat on YouTube. And I was like, I want the album to have a similar vibe. And with the album, I saw it as a way of like, I really believe, and I still believe wholeheartedly in the power of the mantras to uplift people and to work with these very powerful and sacred vibrations. But I also recognize that for some people listening to the mantra albums, at least at that time, 2006, that they wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily have a connection to them because maybe they sound too feminine or too etheric. Um, mm. And so I wanted to create something that would be more celebratory with the mantra. And so we created like this really, very powerful and fun beats with the mantras. And uh, so we made the first album, we called it A Call Groove. And A Call, A-K-A-L, A Call means never dying and groove you know, means to, <laughs> to celebrate life. <laughs> so never ending groove, yeah. all groove. And the, the moment that I felt really good with that album being created was this one woman came up to me and this, remember, this is a time of CD players. And, <laughs> and so she came up to me, she was just like, Oh, I love your music so much. And I was like, Oh, you have the CD. And she's like, no, I don't. And I was like, oh, did you copy it from a friend and download it on your computer? And she was like, no, um, I was, I had your album. I was playing it in the car and a friend of mine who's not into meditation or yoga or spirituality loved it so much that he stole it and won't give it back to me. And I was <laughs> like, that's so amazing. Cause I was like, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. who I want to reach. I want to reach people that wouldn't necessarily be into exactly. mantra, just yeah. actually listen like and enjoy mantra. So, so that was such a, like, that was such a happy moment. <laughs> even though she didn't hear album back but it was such a happy moment for me because i was like oh it does have reach for people that you know to introduce them into the world of mantra totally yeah you, you there are plenty of like you said there are so many other musicians who are creating a sort of music that fit a mold and in a way they're kind of like preaching to the choir but by turning the the genre on its head and implanting those messages into a different style of music that would appeal to a different group, you're, you're creating a new entry point or a new gateway for new people to come into the practice. And who knows, maybe, maybe that guy who took the CD just wanted to do the, do the groove. He just wanted to groove to the jams, but yeah. maybe it sparked an interest that he pursued further. And maybe even if it didn't, those messages are still getting into his subconscious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because we are very sensitive to what we listen to, what we watch, you know, what we consume with our senses. And so if he's grooving to mantra, you know, that's better than grooving to, to a song about, you know, killing people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Much better than a song about fucking bitches getting money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 So are you, are you still creating music or was that, um, kind of a one and done? Yeah, I'm still creating music. So we did two albums together. Then Ferenz moved back to France. And so then I, um, I connected with Alana who owns a studio and it's the only Kuniyoga studio in Cape Town, South Africa called Gudaranda studio. And Alana is a super creative Gemini. She has like, her mind is so brilliant. She's 
interested in so many different worlds and she has so many connections that she connected me. She was like, you should record an album here. And so she connected me to an amazing producer there named Daniel Apple, And, uh, and so we connected and then we created the last album, the African soul and job. And what was really special with that one is he was able to get local singers from, the, from some, even from the townships and the local tribes and communities to come sing on the album. So like we, we pay them to come in and, um, and then they sing and participated in the mantra album. So they were able to add in a different layer of richness and soul to that album. I really, I loved it. I recently, uh, I recently spoke to Ajit Kaur, who, um, I'm sure you're familiar with is, is a really well-known, uh, Kundalini great. teacher and, and musician. Yeah. And she spoke a lot about how her favorite aspect of, being a recording artist and, and traveling performer is the collaborations because she, the way that she put it is essentially like everybody who collaborates on a piece brings a certain, um, creative energy to it. And as a result, you get something that's greater than the sum of its parts. What, what did you learn from collaborating with these different, uh, local singers and musicians? Well, what I, I learned is, uh, well, one track, for example, that uh, her name is Monique is on, is the Rake Rakanahar Mantra. And we put a very like Caribbean, because my family's from Jamaica, and so we put a very Caribbean vibe to that mantra. And she didn't know the mantra, and it's a very complicated mantra. So literally, we recorded like bit by bit. So I was like, Rake Rakanahar, and she was singing that, Rake Rakanahar, and then stop. And then we're like, okay, <laughs> and then we'll get the next line. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, yeah. So it was great in that experience because because she wasn't familiar with the mantra, she was also she approached it like from really like this wide-eyed new perspective and she really felt the power of it. So that made me appreciate like the mission even more. It was just like, wow, she had no connection to the mantra, but she had such a deep connection without even understanding it, without being able to fully pronounce it from beginning to end in one straight go, like she felt such a strong connection to it. So that was like amazing to witness. And then when I listen to the album, it's like the collaboration brings a lot of richness. Um, with this, I'm working on a new album, hopefully it'll be out soon. That I also record with Daniel in South Africa. And there we, um, there we worked with um, two other people and um, like, like Jody had such interesting ideas that she was putting into it. And Knox, the other singer, also had some interesting ideas that I, I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So that was that felt even more of a collaboration of ideas. And that was pretty amazing to witness. Super cool. Yeah, I'm excited to hear that when it comes out. Yeah. Something that I'm noticing or that I hear as kind of a pattern in, in your answers to different questions is... There was a similar experience for you watching your um, watching that singer Monique uh, participate in in the mantra as the first class that you ever taught, which is like if you can simply be the vessel of these powerful teachings, then there isn't a whole lot that you have to do because they themselves are so powerful in their own essence. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah very. It's very true. It's, um, yeah, just to bear witness to it. <laughs> yeah, just bear witness to it. Well, with that in mind, what do you have coming up? What other opportunities are you excited about where you can be the vessel of these teachings that you've been so fortunate to, to be a communicator of? What's exciting on the horizon for you? On the horizon... I switched to analog, so so I used to use the the iPhone calendar, but now I've switched to uh, a paper calendar. <laughs> my friend Alana designed these uh, moon calendars, so I use it as my like mapping book to look at the year ahead. So coming up, what I'm really excited about is um, the third weekend of teacher training here at DreamHive, and DreamHive is a new Kuni Yoga studio that opened up here in Manhattan. And so I'm teaching in the training there. So I'm excited to, um, you know, take this leadership position in this training and help guide the next round of those that will hopefully teach or share the teachings in some capacity. So that's coming up. The third weekend's coming up this this um, next week. 
But also other big projects are I'm going to um, be leading a five-day cleanse in Berkeley. And I love leading the cleanses because every person's on a different protocol because I meet with each person. and But every morning we do uh, Kriyas from Kalina Yoga for detoxification and digestion. So that's coming up in Berkeley on March 23rd. And then leading also five-day cleanse in New York at DreamHive on April 13th. So I love being in person. Last, it was, yeah, last year, I led an online cleanse, which was also really amazing as well. But I miss doing it in person. I miss being with people and teaching them the Koreas. So I'm really excited about uh, those two um, cleanses coming up. And what specifically about, um, about doing them in person is, is more impactful or more rewarding for you than, than doing it online? Uh, it's, well, at least where technology's at right now, it's, um, because we were doing it through zoom. So I was able to see everyone, but it's something nice about physically everyone being in the room together that builds the group energy. So it was still really powerful doing it online. And it was, it, what, what made it nice is that everyone could be on their own schedule, mm-hmm. but with doing mm-hmm. it in person, there is something that can't be replaced for the phys- physical, tangible group energy of being together. So I think both are nice options, but when we are together, we feel, we can literally, like we can smell each other. We're, we're changing, we're exchanging energy with each other and it becomes this very powerful unit of energy to do group practice. Yeah. I hear that. I know what you mean. It is really yeah. nice to practice with others and, and be immersed in that energy, that collective energy. Yeah. And maybe that collective smell of people cleansing who knows <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah sometimes the smell doesn't work out but usually usually it's good you know <laughs> uh, it's an extra extra layer of accountability too i can smell the onions yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one time i had this friend who didn't believe in deodorant come to class and then people didn't believe were just in like, it out of principle you know, people came up to me like please can you do something about it and i just took my deodorant out of my bag and i was like walked over to him. I was like, Hey, do you mind just putting this on? <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. <It's> really funny. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Typically, yeah, shower okay. before practice. Well, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Get that cold shower, get the natural deodorant. It's not, not spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I think now is the perfect time for us to start winding things down with the interview. I have a a final set of questions, which I call collectively the prana round. So I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions. Please answer in minimum one word, maximum one sentence. All right. Okay. Okay. First question in one word, why do you practice yoga? To know myself and handle Crisis with more grace. Oh, crisis with more grace. Okay. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Or actually for today, you could also say a Kriya, your favorite Kriya, if you like. My favorite Kriya is withstanding the pressures of the time because it involves a lot of shaking. (laughs) A lot of shaking. Okay. (laughs) What is the... What is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from one of your teachers? The best piece of advice was there is a difference between commitment and loyalty. So what are you committed to? Chew on that one. All right. Mm -hmm. Recommend one book, either modern or ancient for our audience. One book. Uh, quick fire <laughs> are too many uh so quick fire <sighs> you stopped me i'm like oh which one um well my okay ancient one would be the fruits of the tree of life and modern would be canoeing yoga experience okay thank you next question is is yoga for everyone? Yoga for everyone. Yes, as long as they have doctor's permission. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> very safe, very safe and, and, uh, and considerate of you. Okay. Final question for you, Amanbir. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your Dharma? Uh, the audience can get in touch with me through my website, AuthenticHarmony.com, or just reach out to me on Instagram. Um, my Instagram handle is Yogi Amanbir. So Y-O-G-I Amanbir. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experience with us. I, uh, I miss seeing you around Lighthouse and I hope that you're doing really well in New York with all the exciting things that are coming up. And I hope that we get a chance to practice together and bask in the collective energy together again soon. Yeah, I miss seeing you and I, I look forward to it. Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.